Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of September 2020. Welcome to episode 64 of this podcast series, aka Social Distance Reading Journal number 7. Due to some technical issues on my end, the recording setup for this, the microphone in particular, is a little different than what I usually use. I hope it is still listenable, though I sense there may be a little more echo than usual. Apologies. Hopefully sometime during uh, October, that situation will be rectified. The concept of this show is for us just to have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which makes this pretty much the books I read during September. These books are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter, so you can find those. But those posts are not spoilers for this podcast, because those are just lists. And here, we got a little more review, a little more critique, and a little more discussion. But first, a little feedback. Jason from Hawaii shared this episode and shared the Aloha spirit. And podcasting's Michael Bailey wanted to say a few things about last episode, which he said was fantastic as usual. Well, Mike, we think your feedback was fantastic as usual. Number one, the Rocky Horror reference regarding the comic book Time Warp was appreciated. Thank you, Mike. Yes, that was 50% for you and 50% for Nathaniel Wayne. Two, my mom bought me a copy of Dick Tracy, Big City Blues, back in the summer of 1990. I found it to be a fun read back then and still feel the same way today. Kyle Baker's art is an odd choice for a mainstream tie-in to what was designed to be the summer's biggest movie, but I remember digging it. Great job, as always. Looking forward to the next thing from the network, Podcasting's Michael Bailey. Thank you, thank you. Yes, I thought that art choice for Dick Tracy was interesting. The picture that went along with this episode was of the vision from the era of the ultimate vision trade. And Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, was a fan of this look. Ah, yes. Classic design. Superhero perfection. So why haven't we seen this look in about 20 years? And then he wrote in on the specifics of the episode itself. Well, that was indeed a busy month. I hope being back at work is okay. As you know, I've been working throughout, which means I've had no extra time to read comics about Dr. Doom. Please, may I be permitted a plenary indulgence. First Mart, yes, work is going pretty well. Thank you. And yes, we'll allow it. You mentioned having been sent Avengers 502, but never mentioned it. I suppose there's nothing remotely positive you could say about that horror. To be honest, I did not go back and check on that one in particular, 
uh, Martin, but sometimes with this podcast, when I list a whole lot of comics together, sometimes I do that. So I can maybe skip over having to talk about one or two of them in detail. You caught me. Martin then says he never understood Pogo Plane as a name. Does it jump? And I think, Mart, on that, it's like a VTOL, a vertical takeoff and landing uh, machine. So that process, I guess, does sort of look like jumping, maybe. And then he asked about the paper cuts books for Asterix and wondered if those are ones with new translations. He says, I despair for that. Now, I don't know, but if I ever get them, I will compare them to the ones I currently own, and I will report back. Thank you, Sir Martin. Sir Luke Giaconetti of the Upstate said it was good timing when that one came out, so I just finished the July episode. See, perfect, perfect. Billy D. from Into the Weird was very concerned about something I said last month. I think I heard you say a comic book friend or friends said they don't like prose stories accompanied by spot illustrations in black and white magazines. And then he posted a picture of General Zod saying unkind things about such a person. Now, Billy, I would never say something so unkind about my online friends and comic book podcasting colleagues. I'd never say it. But if you want to say it, I totally agree with you. Ed Moore from Teal Productions commented on my comments about ElfQuest with some good information. If digital works for anyone, the Peenies have everything online for ElfQuest prior to 2014 at ElfQuest.com, and it's free. Oh, Ed, you are speaking my language, buddy. Thank you. Thank you for that information. And social media support for last episode came from Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit, Adam Ironberry, Paul from the Collected Edition, Manuel Carmona, Karen from Between the Pages, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Chris Lydon, Kevin Knox, Wookie Chuckles, Lizanne Oswald, who has a YouTube channel, Weasel Skull, Dr. G, the man of nerdology, Sean from the Nerdy Dads, Drunk and Armed, David Ace Gutierrez, formerly of the former Ultraverse Network, Gene Hendricks and Sir Luke, both from the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, and the kind and lovely Sutherlands from Rad Adventures. And now on to the books that I read last month. As we do on this show, I'm categorizing the books that I read. And first are the issues I read specifically for podcast appearances, the homework books. And for the upcoming episode of Doom Speak, I finally, finally got to read a new issue of the ongoing of our beloved Latverian leader, Dr. Doom number seven. And a podcast follow-up picking up from where the last of those left off uh, from Hoopla, 
I read Steampunk Battlestar Galactica 1880, two through four, dropped up a storyline that I started in a quarter bin episode. Uh, the aspects that I liked from the first issue, those continued. And the ones I didn't like quite as much, well, they were still there too. But overall, if it sounds interesting, I'd recommend checking that one out. In comics, I read for listening to podcasts. And thanks to the DC Universe app, there are more of these than there have been in the past. And to listen to the unnumbered episodes 239, 240, and 241 of From Crisis to Crisis, co-hosted by podcasting's Michael Bailey himself. I read Action Comics 718 and 719, Adventures of Superman 532, Superman 109, and Superman Man of Steel 53 and 54. These included some cool team-ups, a Christmas story, and more importantly, the return of the greatest LL ever, my number one ship for Superman, Clory. Yeah, Clark and Lori. Lori Lamaris? He's an alien? She's a mermaid? Come on. Admit it. You feel the love, too. And to listen to episode 394, part four of the Superman Fan Podcast, hosted by Billy Hogan, Arid Action Comics 335, and to listen along with Batman Nightcast episode 31, I read Detective 475 and 476, the classic Laughing Fish story from the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers run, and to listen along with Shag in the JLI Bwahaha Podcast episode 34, I read Justice League Europe number 10. And to listen along with episode 82 of the Legion Clubhouse, I read Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes 228. For listening along with Tim Price, the Podcrasher, and his uh, maiden voyage on the Outcaster show that he does with Ashford, episode 1, I read Batman and the Outsiders number 1 from 1983. I bought this title back in the day, and I remember enjoying it. I enjoyed the episode as well, and I look forward to hearing more episodes and rereading more of these issues. And to listen along with fellow Ohioan Rob Myers and his buddies' podcasts, Everyone Loves the Drake, episode 116. I read Robin 29 and 30, a story that took place in the aftermath of Contagion. Oh, I see what you did there, Rob. This was a Maxi Zeus story with a strong Helen of Troy theme. And for their episode 120, I read Robin 31, where the boy Wonder teams up with Wildcat in a fun adventure. I also accidentally read Robin 49 first instead of 29 because I misread that on my podcast player. So it's off to new comics that we read right off the shelves. And we don't actually have any for me to talk about here. I did buy two. I mentioned Doctor Doom earlier. And there was another oversized special anniversary issue of something that I bought during September. But I won't read it until probably next week. So there are actually no books for this section. 
and looking at my pull list, looking into the future, this section is going to remain pretty slim. Which takes us to the general comic reading that I did. And Mike the Peacock Peacock of Justice's First Dawn and Count Dante's Black Dragon Society is getting out of the podcasting game, at least for a while, he says. And as part of that, or maybe related to that, he's downsizing his comic book collection a bit. And I was the fortunate recipient of his generosity, receiving a good-sized box of comics and trades. And among those were The New Wave from Eclipse Comics, not a bad start to a hero story. But what I liked particularly about this was the business model used by this book. It was half-sized, only four internal sheets of paper, 14 story pages, for the low low price of 50 cents. And the book would continue at that for the first eight issues before switching to a traditional size and schedule and price. But that only lasted a few more issues and it ended at issue 13. Mike also sent the official crisis index and the official crisis crossover index, great resource books, and also wonderful sources of nostalgia. And he sent Lady Rawhide, number two, from Topps Comics from 1995. It was written by Don McGregor and takes place in McGregor's version of the Zorro universe. Uh, he wrote a lot of books uh, under that license. Albeit in this case, he is dealing with a lead character in Lady Rawhide who wears uh, far fewer clothes than Zorro does. Now, as a result of this issue, I poked around Hoopla and found a miniseries starring, or at least co-starring, that character. That is Lady Zorro, Lady Rawhide, one through four. This was an interesting story, with the ladies teaming up to save a load of women who are kidnapped to be sold to brothels. And with lots of swords and heroic daring-do, our heroines take on the kidnappers, and also while they're at it, you know, wolves and bears and blizzards and really steep cliffs. And they have terrific banter. And overall, I found this little mini-series to be fun and very adventurous. From the generous Canadian Rob Lance at the Comic Connection store in Oakville, Ontario, I read The Hunters, number 14 from 1990. This is the Mature Readers series written by Joey Cavalieri, starring the Helena Bertinelli version of the character one of my favorite lesser-known DC characters. This is early in her career, and I really liked all of the dynamics that were at play here. Sir, I was Joe. Sent in some comics recently, including Doom Patrol number 4 from the 1987 Paul Kupperberg run. The team is still in the assembling phase with Valentina Vostok and Rhea and even good old Robot Man. A little unsure of their places in the team, with lots of people not so sure about Arani's leadership. And at the end of this issue, we get the arrival of Wayne Hawkins, thief, at the mansion's headquarters. Now, I did not read this run when it came out, but I do like a lot of Doom Patrol books that I have read over the years, and this series I think might be worth a deeper dive sometime. Dr. Ange 
recently took some time out of his busy schedule blogging at Comic Box Commentary and working on his side gig as an ER doctor to send me a care package of comics, including Danger Club, number one from Image from 2012, an interesting concept, the world's greatest heroes, headed off to space to battle an attacking evil horde, and they didn't come back. So what we're left with here is the sidekicks, the kids, to defend the world. And at least in the first issue, they're kind of petty and don't really get along. So they end up, of course, battling each other before even trying to battle bad guys. He also sent an issue of Supergirl, of course. And I went ahead to the DCU app to read the next issue. They One kind of led into each other. That was Supergirl 32 and 33 from the Peter David run. 32 was a pretty intense issue with Supergirl heading to Thailand to set hundreds of girls free from scores of brothels around the country. I sense a theme in this episode. And that actually doesn't go quite as smoothly as she'd hope. And it's a, it's a pretty tough situation without a single easy answer. And there are strange behind-the-scenes stuff's happening that involves Supergirl as well. So a dramatic uh, issue or two. And from the Sterling Gates run later, from 2010, he sent uh, from that run Supergirl 48, with our heroine taking on Silver Banshee, who is probably my favorite of Supergirl's rogues. Very good issue. Sir Luke Giaconetti sent in some books recently, including The Flash, 100-page Walmart special number four. And I felt here that they were really trying to go for a TV tie-in approach, as we have cover bubbles showing Green Arrow, Reverse Flash, Gorilla Grodd, and an Iris West who looks a lot like the one in the TV show. Not a bad couple of new stories, and reprints included an issue of Blue Beetle, and an issue of Rebirth Green Arrow that we bought uh, when it came out. So not a bad read and a good bunch of stories. He also sent the Agent Liberty special from 1992. A pretty good hero in a time of war book with all of the military and intelligence and modern politics aspects that that, that, that implies. Good story, Dan Jurgen's writing. Not a character I know a lot of, but I was glad to get a chance to read this one. And from our good buddy Carla Y, I read Miss Fury number six. It's a dynamite character I've read some of over the last year or so, but not this issue. So that was nice. She's a 1940s pulp character, and this is a World War II story, but with enough time travel elements to really make it, I think, stand out from the crowd. She also sent an issue of a Marvel crime series from 2003. The Crew, number three. I liked the world. I liked the concept. And I liked the issue. There are a lot of interesting series from the aughts that I'm just not familiar with. In some cases like this, not even aware of. She also sent JLA 99 from 2004. This was a John Byrne and Chris Claremont story about the JLA and the Doom Patrol. Battling the Tenth Circle. Lots of vampires and just general strange things. And I asked Carla about the eclectic mix of her care packages, and she had a good explanation. 
She regularly buys blind bags, three packs or four packs, and so gets a wide mix of books and sometimes duplicates, and she sends some of those on to me. So thank you, Carla. When the protests were getting started in June, a list of black-owned comic stores went around, and I saw that there was one right here in Columbus. Crazy. That's crazy with a K and two Zs, because comics. So I've been going to Crazy Comics once a month or so to spend a certain amount of money there, because that is something I can tangibly do. I believe that business, the economy, the free market, can be a powerful force for social change. And from the dollar bins there, I bought Infinity Inc. number 50, which was double-sized, which obviously matters to me. The story was a little wonky, involving a fairy-based theme park in California and the incursion of actual Lorelei and actual fairies. And that's where it gets strange. I didn't dig all of the characters here, but Power Girl, Wildcat, uh, they're usually worth reading about just on their own. And boy, did Roy Thomas really, really, I mean really, want to be a novelist. I mean, there are extra pages in this issue. It was double-sized. And Roy certainly filled those extra pages up with words. I mean, lots. In lots of words. And from the 50-cent box at Pulp Reality, I read Brave and the Bold 144 from 1978, a classic, coverless comic. Batman Green Arrow jumping back and forth through time to find a, a magical arrow from the time of Merlin. I know that sounds crazy, but it was written by Bob Haney. I know. That kind of explains it, doesn't it? Uh, but boy, it was fun. It made no sense. I mean, it made less than no sense, to be honest. But it was fun, and there was a pretty good human target backup as well. In Logan's World, from the Adventure Comics adaptation of the actual sequel novel to the novel Logan's Run by William Nolan. Don't think I've read this novel. Certainly haven't in the last few decades, but the text piece at the beginning from Nolan gave a little bit of info, jumps 10 years into the future, Logan and Jess have a kid, and everything has changed. Uh, my main problem with this one wasn't those elements of the story, but more the manga-ish style of the art. That, that kind of made it hard for me personally to get into. And Tarzan 230 from 1974, when it had turned into a 100-page special uh, series. A couple of excellent Tarzan stories and a couple of really interesting prose features, including a reprint of a Burroughs essay about how he came to write the Tarzan adventures. Then some really weird old reprint choices, including Simba the Jungle Boy, a terrible story. And the intro of Detective Chimp. That was not a great story, but it was entertaining. And it was fun to see Bobo from back in those early days. And from Whitman Comics, from before I was born, The Twilight Zone 92. 
decent enough weird stories, a little sci-fi-ish, a little horror-ish. But I don't know that I've ever read a TZ comic that really, really captures the magic of the best of the TV show episodes. And from our main LCS, World's Greatest Comics, books that cost anywhere from a buck all the way down to 10 cents. Yes, you heard me correctly. I read Beowulf number one. It's from the mid-70s era when DC was going headlong into the fantasy genre, or at least the sword and sorcery, Tor, Claw, and of course the most successful warlord. This wasn't bad as having the Beowulf epic as a jumping off point at least gives the stories and series some shape. I don't think I'd ever read this one. It was pretty good. This era, this mid-70s is a real blind spot for me, but also, unfortunately, for the DCU app. They have nothing from Claw or Stalker or Beowulf, and those are bummers. And Blood Legacy, number one, a top cow book that has an interesting, mysterious premise. A dead woman brought into the morgue, but over the course of a few days, she slowly becomes less dead. That's half the issue. And the other half, interspersed throughout that, are her dreams of past lives and such. You read enough comics and you really appreciate one that at least tries to do something a little different in terms of its narrative. So I give Blood Legacy credit at least for that. And two issues from 1999, a follow-up event to an all-time classic work. But these ones, The Kingdom, Kid Flash, and The Kingdom, Son of the Bat, they fell well short of Kingdom Come. Not a huge fan of these two, and pretty sure I'll leave other issues of the kingdom behind. You know, for other lucky purchasers. And there were some kids' books that I read, mostly from Sir Rob's care package, but also some from Sir I Was Joe and some from Pulp Reality. A pretty good selection here. Top Cat, 11 and 16. Jughead Jones Comics Digest, 38. Archie's TV Laugh Out. 63 and 100, Treasure Chest, A Fun and Fact, Volume 27, Number 2, Sugar and Spike, 64, Richie Rich Billions, 16 and 25, Star Comics Magazine, Number 6, and Life with Archie, 50, 191, and 259. Life with Archie, 50, from 1955, included a Pure Heart the Powerful story. And that was pretty enjoyable. That's a character I'm more aware of than familiar with from reading, if that makes sense. But I like the concept, and I liked that particular story as well. And Top Cat was surprisingly strong. One of the things I liked was that it had variable length stories, a mix of one and four and five and even seven pagers. And that at least, it gives the impression that an attempt was made to align the length of the story with the content in the story. Whether that's how it happened or not, it does give that appearance, and, and, and that made it an enjoyable read, and the stories themselves were usually pretty funny. But Star Comics Magazine? Wow. 
this just came out at the wrong time for me, and I did not like much of what was in here. Top Dog, you're no Top Cat. That's for one thing. Heathcliff, you're no Top Cat either, actually, now that I think about it. Muppet Babies, I mean, man, just, just no. All right, it's time to take a break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about the graphic novels, trade paperbacks, and long runs that I read in September. But before that, I wanted to give a shout-out to a Kickstarter for a creator, Roland Mann, who reached out to me. I'll post a link to this on the blog post for this episode. And if you're interested, you do have to move fast because the Kickstarter ends around October 4th, 2020, which is maybe two or three days after this episode goes live. And what he's doing is a twofer offering from his line, uh, Silver Line Comics, that is Cat and Mouse, numbers one through three, and Trump's book one. And the rewards go from as low as $4 to get a digital version of one of the comics, all the way up into the $60 and $90 and $120 range for pieces of original art and that sort of thing. And these are generally in the sci-fi slash superhero genre. So if that interests you, you're familiar with the work of Roland Mann from his prior work in comics, check that out. Need a podcast talking about weird stuff? Well, then we've got just the thing for you. Into the Weird, a podcast chronicling the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age of comics, featuring the voice talents of Mr. Billy Delicious. Hola. Mr. Herman Hellstrom Lowe. Hey there. And straight from the long box of darkness, his infernal majesty Dormammu. How are you? And many more. But wait a minute, you might be thinking, aren't all comics infused with a grain of weirdness? I mean, Reed Richards can stretch every single part of his body, right? And why did Ultron design the vision with working genitalia? Well, you would be correct, but Into the Weird isn't just any regular comic book show, folks. We focus on the really bizarre. Here are a few examples. A sword and sorcery barbarian grown spontaneously from a jar of peanut butter. A duck running for president of the United States. Benjamin Franklin playing hide the sausage with Doctor Strange's girlfriend, Clea. A giant-sized man-thing lamenting the death of a clown. A serial killer obsessed with killing only fools, dressed as cavalier with laser guns after witnessing a priest fornicating. And so much more. So if you like the wonderful weirdness of the Bronze Age from 1970 to 1985, and characters such as Ghost Rider, Morbius, The Defenders, Man-Thing, Son of Satan, Skull the Slayer, Kill Raven, Howard the Duck, and the weird granddaddy of them all, Dr. Stephen Strange, then this is the show for you. ITW's on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and TuneIn. Hit subscribe and join us for a comic-filled jaunt into the weird.
and we're back. Talk about trades, long runs, and miniseries that I read last month. And this was a pretty spidey, tabulous month. I read lots of issues, lots of different runs, different titles, different creators. And we'll start with some that I got from World's Greatest Comic for a quarter each to first issues of a three-issue story that ran through the 1990 annuals. This is Spidey's Totally Tiny Adventure. And I read Amazing Spider-Man Annual 24 and Spectacular Annual number 10. The gist of this was that at a science expo, Spidey got accidentally blasted with Ant-Man-related shrinking gas. And Spidey has a lot of problems adjusting to his new height. It is totally throwing him off his game. It seemed like a silly story, a disposable story running through some annuals, but I was liking it as far as I got. And then uh, a solo book I got from Paul T., the Spectacular Spider-Man 244 from 1997. And boy, did this seem like it was from 1997. It's Craven. He's back. And kind of crazy. And he's very, very 1997. Uh, Paul T. also sent some amazing issues from the JMS run. That's uh, Amazing Spider-Man 509 to 512. 514, 515, and 517. And yes, this run of issues includes Sin's Past. And I have to say that this really brought up the difference between story and plot and script. Because the overall story, having MJ and Peter deal with the death of Gwen and the ghost of her that hangs over their relationship, that could be a powerful story to tell. And then the details of how it played out, the scripting, the dialogue, the emotional punch of it all, that was all very strong. It's the type of storytelling that you can do with married characters, by the way. But it's the terrible plot mechanics. It's how you get from the story to the details. It's that. It's what JMS felt that he had to do to get a ghost of Gwen back in Peter's life. And yes, that's that Norman Osborn had sex with Gwen, impregnated her with strangely powered twins. That is so terrible a plot point. That, along with the deal with the devil. It's all people remember of this run, and that's kind of a shame. And sticking with our favorite wall crawler, I hoopled a recent series that explores Spidey's early days as a hero when he was still in high school. Spidey, senior year, 1 through 12. Each issue has Spidey take on a different antagonist, including good old Doc Doom. And in the last few issues, six of the more sinister villains team up and try to take on our friendly neighborhood hero, and there's an ongoing plot point of Peter having a crush on Gwen, who was way out of his league. And at the end, it turns out she likes him too. It's sweet and a pretty fun, light series. I was glad I found that one. 
and from the Howard Mackey run from the late 90s for 50 cents each, thanks to Pulp Reality. I read Peter Parker, Spider-Man, 90, 95, and 96. These were a little 90s-ish for my taste, although I do like the character of Madam Webb, and she is involved in one of the storylines here. That was the, the best bit of these three issues. And then from the dollar bits and half price books, I read Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man 5 and 9 from 2006. I really liked one of these, Issue 5, written by Peter David. A teenage girl runs across Spidey in a few strange scenarios, and in her teen self-absorption, along with a healthy dose of JJJ's editorials, she becomes convinced that he is stalking her. It's a good story with a real poignant ending. This just totally came out of nowhere and delivered a solid done-in-one. And don't worry, I read some of the classics as well from the generous Canadian Sir Rob Lance, Amazing Spider-Man 132, 177, 182, 185, and 188, all from the 1970s. Mostly these are one-off adventures against villains such as the Molten Man, Rocket Racer, and Jigsaw. But there's also a ton about Peter's personal life, including a proposal to Mary Jane. And since this batch of issues that I read skipped a lot in between, about six issues later, MJ's dating a quarterback, and he's hanging with Betty Brant. And when you read disconnected issues like this, Situations like that, I have to say, do add some intrigue. So maybe those Marvel folk knew what they were doing way back when. I mentioned Mike Peacock in the first half of the episode. His care package included some excellent trades, including Volume 4 of Marvel Essentials, The Avengers. And from that book, I read in glorious black and white, Avengers 120 to 135, Captain Marvel 33, Fantastic Four 150, and Giant Size Avengers 1 through 4. This included a storyline where we learn the origin, or maybe we learned, the origin of Mantis, or at least one origin, that's the catch. And that crashed right into a Thanos storyline, which is where the Captain Marvel crossover issue came in. We had a lot of relationship drama between Wanda and Vision, and Cap struggling with whether he wants to remain an Avenger or not. He is here as Nomad for part of the stories and dips in and out of Avengers action based on what's going on in his title, where he's fighting the Serpent Society. There is also the Inhuman Wedding of Crystal and Pietro, which is interrupted by Ultron. That's the one that crosses over into the Fantastic Four issue. And then we get Kang and Ramatut and Immortus, who have some cosmic plans for Mantis. That's right. It's the Celestial Madonna saga. This is a famous storyline that I know mostly just by reputation, and that reputation is not universally positive. So I was intrigued as the storyline was developing, and it was slowly dawning on me that this is a, quote, well-known story, unquote. That was actually kind of a cool reading experience, that slow revelation 
that you are reading something well-known. In terms of my take on that story, it was all a bit confusing, both in concept and execution. But it was bold, wild, crazy, and it didn't let up, and I guess that's not bad. Although the double wedding issue was a bit strange. Wanda married the Vision, and that mutant and android pairing wasn't the stranger of the two weddings, because Mantis married a tree. You know, so there's that. But I think the key lesson to remember here is that the 1970s were weird. And this was not a plan, but I managed to read a bunch of books in September written by Mike Barron. From Pulp Reality, I picked up an issue of an independent crime series that I read a, another issue of a, a month or two back. The Grackle, number two. This is the story of a detective doing his best to keep a drug war from breaking out in his city with all the bureaucratic and political interference that that usually brings. And he gets in some pretty funny political jabs, which I appreciated. And an Acts of Vengeance story featuring a certain Latverian leader of the Punisher, number 28. And here Baron does an okay job portraying Dr. Doom, given the limitations of writing a book with some other guy's name on the title, proving once again that Dr. Doom can be anyone's adversary, not just that foolish family of four. And from Mr. Uncollecting, Tom Panarese, from First Comics, I read Badger, 43, 44, and 70. The first two told a vampire story, and it wasn't bad at all. And issue 70 was one of the strangest Christmas stories ever. It starred a drunken Santa who didn't really mind messing around a little bit on the big night, if you know what I'm saying, and who had very strong feelings about some of the nations behind the Iron Curtain. This is 1991, as a reminder. Those who weren't allowed to celebrate Christmas. And also, some comments about the more war-torn parts of this planet. Baron is not afraid to speak his mind about such things. And from the combination of Sir Rob Lance and Tom Panarese, I read a pair of movie tie-in books, Conan the Barbarian, movie special number one, and Conan the Destroyer, number one. Well, these were both actually the first halves of two-part adaptation, so that made them each slightly unusual reading experiences, reading them back-to-back. Uh, but that's a minor quibble. These were both pretty solid reads, I thought. And sticking with the Robert E. Howard license, I read a handful of Marvel magazines from the 1970s that had similar content. These were all from Pulp Reality at 50 cents each. And two of these three even had covers. Mind blown. Cole and the Barbarians, number one a two-part story featuring King Cole, and a third that told a more general dragon-slaying barbarian kind of story, and a two-page text piece about the history of the character of Cole. Interesting that as soon as Conan took off, all of R.E.H.'s other characters, Cole, Solomon Kane, many others, they languished. He either never came back to them at all, or 
only in, in very small ways. The vast majority of his attention went to the moneymaker, to Conan. The cull story in this magazine was very good, with Roy Thomas doing the adaptation, and a variety of artists, including Gil Kane and Wally Wood. Bizarre Adventures, number 26, which featured a 50-plus page original story by Doug Mench and John Bolton. And it was a pretty good story, especially for an original. You had sorcery and snake people and battles. I mean, a, a, a lot, but lots and lots of battles. And King Cull was different enough at a character level from Conan to make it seem like it kind of fit as a Cull story, if that makes sense. I mean, it's tough. They are pretty darn similar. It wouldn't have been hard to see this as a Conan story, but a few things would have had to been changed, I think. And then getting back to the big guy himself, Savage Sword of Conan Magazine 110, which featured a Bill Mantlo story. That was very good. And also, an even better, wordless, 10-page story about a normal couple who get in the way of a Conan battle. And from the combination of Carla Y and Crazy Comics, I read a handful of Wildstorm books, Gen 13, 34 and 40, and Claw the Unconquered. This is the 2006 Chuck Dixon version. One, two, three, five, and six out of six. I'm not too familiar with Gen 13, except in the broadest of broad strokes. And these were, you know, fine. Maybe a bit better than I expected in terms of story and script, but that's probably because I had no expectations for the books. No real desire to dig into other issues of this either, but again, these were fine. Claw the Unconquered, on the other hand, was written by Chuck Dixon. And so, as you can imagine, it's pretty great. I've only read a couple of issues, maybe only one actually, of the 1970s original DC version. But this one has the same basic take. A cursed hero with a diseased arm, a claw-like, you might say. And in seeking out a cure for his curse, he makes a tentative alliance with a witch and a werewolf clan. But somehow, not everyone he relies on is reliable, and not everyone he trusts is trustworthy. Very good story. Now, like I said, I was only able to track down five of the six issues in this series. But by all the good luck, the one I was missing was issue four. And as any Doctor Who fan knows, missing the fourth part of a six-part story means not missing much. That's actually important to the story. And from the combination of World's Greatest Comics and the DCU app, I read the oversized Always good deals at bargain prices. Justice League Quarterly 2 and 3, and then 6 through 9. Each of these had a 40-page or so lead story, and one or two or three backups. All new stories, which doesn't always happen in big oversized collections. So that was nice. And most of these were pretty good, all things considered. They were certainly goofy, such as the Galactus-style character who came to Earth with the single, sole mission of redecorating it. I like the backups, getting to know the Global Guardian characters more, Crimson Fox, Power Girl, someone like that. Pretty good reads. And like I said, for cheap, or for free via the app, 
pretty great deals. And from the combination of Derek Crabb of the Fan Holes and the DCU app, I read Superman Up in the Air 1 through 3, which is made up of the new stories from the Walmart Superman Giant issues. I think this totaled six issues representing the first year of Walmart books. Um, the Walmart books had 14 pages each of this story, so they repackaged two of those. So the first three issues of this were the new stories of the six issues of the Walmart books, if I think that made sense. That was a lot of numbers, but I think I got most of them right. Uh, it's a, a pretty good story. I like Superman in space. That's a good change of pace. Uh, the stories out there aren't always the greatest, but I like the energy, the possibility, the potential to just tell a different type of Superman story. So I enjoyed where this was going so far. And when the other ones show up on the app, I anticipate knocking out the rest of the storyline. And on this next one, Carla Y pulled a total Sir Iowa's Joe move. Joe has the uncanny ability to send me one or two issues of a series that I like so much that I scramble to Hoopla or the public library or wherever to find the rest of the issues. And this time, that's what Carla did. She sent me one issue of this title. And that led me to read from Dynamite, 2012-2013, um, The Spider, 1 through 12. The appeal was twofold. First, it's an old pulp character in the vein of the shadow. Very much in the vein of the shadow, as a matter of fact. Like, really, really close to the shadow, if you know what I'm saying, especially in the visual. The spider, it has to be said, does not have mind-clouding power. So that was a difference. But that was also the draw, the old pulp character notion of the story. But the bigger draw to me was the writer, David Liss. As comic book fans, that name might not ring too many bells. He wrote some Spider-Man and some Black Panther. But I am a huge fan of this man's prose fiction. He specializes in novels that combine the historic and business elements. I would especially recommend his Benjamin Weaver historical novels, such as A Conspiracy of Paper, A Spectacle of Corruption, and The Devil's Company, along with standalone novels, The Coffee Trader, and The Whiskey Rebels. So that was what really drew my attention to this comic from, from Carlos Care Package, and it drove me to Hoopla to get to the rest of the series. Thoroughly enjoyed this. And I already have the last trade up from Hoopla, so I know that that is definitely going to happen soon. My buddy Chris Willett of Bizarre Manor spent some time during lockdown doing household cleaning. I think a lot of us did that, including going through some of his comic collection. I don't know. Some of us did that as well. And he downsized, and he sent me stuff, mostly stuff he'd gotten for free over the years, otherwise known as the best kinds of comics. So among those were Free Comic Book Day 2005, Marvel Adventures, and Free Comic Book Day 2010, The Mighty Fighting Avengers. Of these, I think I liked the 2005 one more. It was the chameleon taking on the FF at the same time when Peter Parker was breaking into the Baxter building to try to join the team. 
in speaking of that family. I mentioned Crazy Comics earlier, the black-owned shop, and from their dollar boxes, with a little help from half-price books, I picked up more of a series that I started last month, FF9, and then 11 through 16. Not enough Doctor Doom, of course. I mean, there's rarely ever enough Doctor Doom in anything. But this story does teach one very important lesson, and that is that the only thing worse than one Reed Richards is an entire council of Reeds, a parliament of Reeds. As if legislative bodies aren't bad enough without Reeds, but one made up just of Reeds, of only Reeds? Yikes. I know that the series continues after these issues for a bit, but this issue does seem to wrap up the first big storyline. And Matt Fraction does a pretty good job at that, actually. I mean, Doom is in it, but let me emphasize, he's not in it enough. I maybe I've mentioned that already. <laughs> well, I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, I really like The Spider a lot. But I don't want to get too excited about a story when I've only read the first two-thirds of it. Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man number five just, to me, came out of the blue and was surprisingly good. The Cull magazine was enjoyable. Chuck Dixon's take on Claw was strong. But in terms of what I thought was my favorite, I mean, come on, be serious. For the first time in six months, there was a new issue of the Doctor Doom ongoing. So Doctor Doom number seven, clearly my favorite book of the month. Next month, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be reading other than knocking out the spider, and I'm thinking about checking out some of the John Byrne Star Trek New Vision series. And now that I mention it, next month will be October, so there will be a large chunk of horror and scary and weird and eerie comics read as well. But whatever, I do end up reading. I will be here to talk about all the books I read in October. And that episode ought to be out sometime in early November. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these books that I mentioned, especially the ones you've read. You can send that feedback via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or as a comment on the Facebook and blog post for this episode, the blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning. <laughs>